Part Two, Chapter Twenty Six of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Daylight had made no assertion of total abstinence, though he had not taken a drink for months after the day he resolved to let his business go to smash. Soon he proved himself strong enough to dare to take a drink without taking a second. On the other hand, with his coming to live in the country, had passed all desire and need for drink. He felt no yearning for it, and even forgot that it existed. Yet he refused to be afraid of it, and in town, on occasion, when invited by the storekeeper, he would reply, All right, son, if my taking a drink will make you happy, here goes. Whiskey for mine. But such a drink began no desire for a second. It made no impression. He was too profoundly strong to be affected by a thimbleful. As he had prophesied to Dede, burning daylight, the city financier, had died a quick death on the ranch, and his younger brother, the daylight from Alaska, had taken his place. The threatened inundation of fat had subsided, and all his old-time Indian leanness and of muscle had returned. So likewise did the old slight hollows in his cheeks come back. For him they indicated the pink of physical condition. He became the acknowledged strong man of the Sonoma Valley, the heaviest lifter and hardest-winded among a husky race of farmer folk. And once a year he celebrated his birthday in the old-fashioned frontier way, challenging all the valley to come up the hill to the ranch and be put on its back. A fair portion of the valley responded, brought the women folk and children along, and picnicked for the day. At first, when in need of ready cash, he had followed Ferguson's example of working at day's labor, but he was not long in gravitating to a form of work that was more stimulating and more satisfying, and that allowed him even more time for Dede and the ranch and the perpetual riding through the hills. Having been challenged by the blacksmith, in a spirit of banter, to attempt the breaking of a certain incorrigible colt, he succeeded so signally as to earn quite a reputation as a horse-breaker, and soon he was able to earn whatever money he desired at this, to him, agreeable work. A sugar king, whose breeding farm and training stables were at Caliente, three miles away, sent for him in time of need, and before the year was out, offered him the management of the stables. But Daylight smiled and shook his head. Furthermore, he refused to undertake the breaking of as many animals as were offered. I'm sure not going to die from overwork, he assured Dede, and he accepted such work only when he had to have money. Later, he fenced off a small run in the pasture, where, from time to time, he took in a limited number of incorrigibles. "'We've got the ranch and each other,' he told his wife. "'I'd sooner ride with you to Hood Mountain any day than earn forty dollars. You can't buy sunsets and loving wives and cool spring water and such folderols with forty dollars, and forty million dollars can't buy back for me one day that I didn't ride with you to Hood Mountain.' His life was eminently wholesome and natural. Early to bed, 
He slept like an infant and was up with the dawn, always with something to do and with a thousand little things that enticed but did not clamor. He was himself never overdone. Nevertheless, there were times when both he and Dede were not above confessing tiredness at bedtime after seventy or eighty miles in the saddle. Sometimes when he had accumulated a little money, and when the season favored, they would mount their horses with saddlebags behind, and ride away over the wall of the valley, and down into the other valleys. When night fell, they put up at the first convenient farm or village, and on the morrow they would ride on, without definite plan, merely continuing to ride on day after day, until their money gave out, and they were compelled to return. On such trips they would be gone anywhere from a week to ten days or two weeks, and once they managed a three-weeks trip. They even planned ambitiously some day, when they were disgracefully prosperous, to ride all the way up to Daylight's boyhood home in eastern Oregon, stopping on the way in Deedee's girlhood home in Siskiyou. And all the joys of anticipation were theirs a thousand times as they contemplated the detailed delights of this grand adventure. One day, stopping to mail a letter at the Glen Ellen post office, they were hailed by the blacksmith. "'Say, Daylight,' he said, "'a young fellow named Slauson sends you his regards. He came through in an auto on the way to Santa Rosa. He wanted to know if you didn't live hereabouts, but the crowd with him was in a hurry. So he sent you his regards and said to tell you he'd taken your advice and was still going on, breaking his own record. Daylight had long since told Dede of the incident. Slosson, he meditated, Slosson. That must be the hammer-thrower. He put my hand down twice, the young scamp. He turned suddenly to Dede, say, It's only twelve miles to Santa Rosa, and the horses are fresh. She divined what was in his mind, of which his twinkling eyes and sheepish, boyish grin gave sufficient advertisement, and she smiled and nodded acquiescence. "'We'll cut across by Bennett Valley,' he said. "'It's nearer that way.' There was little difficulty, once in Santa Rosa, of finding Slosson. He and his party had registered at the Oberlin Hotel and Daylight encountered the young hammer-thrower himself in the office. "'Look here, son,' Daylight announced, as soon as he had introduced Dede, "'I've come to go you another flutter at that hand-game. Here's a likely place.' Slauson smiled and accepted. The two men faced each other, the elbows of their right arms on the counter, their hands clasped. Slauson's hand quickly forced backward and down. "'You're the first man that's ever succeeded in doing it,' he said. "'Let's try it again.' "'Sure,' Daylight answered. "'And don't forget, son, that you're the first man that put mine down. That's why I lit out after you today.' Again they clasped hands, and again Slosson's hand went down. He was a broad-shouldered, heavy-muscled young giant, at least half a head taller than Daylight, and he frankly expressed his chagrin and asked for a third trial. This time he steeled himself to the effort, and for a moment the issue was in doubt. 
With flushed face and set teeth, he met the other's strength till his crackling muscles failed him. The air exploded sharply from his tensed lungs as he relaxed in surrender, and the hand dropped limply down. "'You're too many for me,' he confessed. "'I only hope you'll keep out of the hammer-throwing game.' Daylight laughed and shook his head. "'We might compromise and each stay in his own class. You stick to hammer-throwing, and I'll go on turning down hands.' But Slosson refused to accept defeat. Say, he called out, as Daylight and Dede, astride their horses, were preparing to depart. Say, do you mind if I look you up next year? I'd like to tackle you again. Sure, son, you're welcome to a flutter any time, though I give you fair warning that you'll have to go some. You'll have to train up, from plowing and chopping wood and breaking colts these days. Now and again on the way home, Dede could hear the big boy husband chuckling gleefully. As they halted their horses on top of the divide, out of Bennett Valley, in order to watch the sunset, he ranged alongside and slipped his arm around her waist. "'Little woman,' he said, "'you're sure responsible for it all, and I leave it to you. If all the money in creation is worth as much as one arm like that, when it's got a sweet little woman like this to go around. For all his delights in the new life, Dede was his greatest. As he explained to her more than once, he had been afraid of love all his life, only in the end to come to find it the greatest thing in the world. Not alone were the two well mated, but in coming to live on the ranch, they had selected the best soil in which their love would prosper. In spite of her books and music, there was in her a wholesome simplicity and love of the open and natural, while daylight in every fiber of him was essentially an open-air man. Of one thing indeed, daylight never got over marveling about, and that was her efficient hands, the hands that he had first seen taking down flying shorthand notes and ticking away at the typewriter. The hands that were firm to hold a magnificent brute like Bob, that wonderfully flashed over the keys of the piano, that were unhesitant in household tasks, and that were twin miracles to caress and run rippling fingers through his hair. But daylight was not unduly oxurious. He lived his man's life just as she lived her woman's life. There was proper division of labor in the work they individually performed. But the whole was entwined and woven into a fabric of mutual interest and consideration. He was as deeply interested in her cooking and her music as she was in his agricultural adventures in the vegetable garden. And he, who resolutely declined to die of overwork, saw to it that she should likewise escape so dire a risk. In this connection, using his man's judgment and putting his man's foot down, he refused to allow her to be burdened with the entertaining of guests. For guests they had, especially in the warm, long summers, and usually they were her friends from the city, who were put to camp in tents which they cared for themselves, and where, like true campers, 
they had also to cook for themselves. Perhaps only in California, where everybody knows camp life, would such a program have been possible. But Daylight's steadfast contention was that his wife should not become cook, waitress, and chambermaid, because she did not happen to possess a household of servants. On the other hand, chafing dish suppers in the big living room for their camping guests were a common happening, at which times Daylight allotted them their chores and saw that they were performed. For one who stopped only for the night, it was different. Likewise, it was different with her brother, back from Germany, and again able to sit a horse. On his vacations, he became the third in the family, and to him was given the building of the fires, the sweeping, and the washing of the dishes. Daylight devoted himself to the lightening of Didi's labors, and it was her brother who incited him to utilize the splendid water power of the ranch that was running to waste. It required Daylight's breaking of extra horses to pay for the materials, and the brother devoted a three weeks vacation to assisting, and together they installed a pelting wheel. Besides sawing wood and turning his lathe and grindstone, Daylight connected the power with the churn. But his great triumph was when he put his arm around Deedee's waist and led her out to inspect a washing machine run by the Pelton wheel, which really worked and really washed clothes. Deedee and Ferguson, between them, after a patient struggle, had taught Daylight poetry, so that in the end he might have been often seen sitting slack in the saddle and dropping down the mountain trails through the sun-flecked woods, chanting aloud Kipling's Tomlinson, or when sharpening his axe, singing into the whirling grindstone Henley's Song of the Sword. Not that he ever became consummately literary in the way his two teachers were, beyond Frau Lippo Lippi and Caliban and Setzebus, he found nothing in Browning, while George Meredith was ever his despair. It was of his own initiative, however, that he invested in a violin, and practiced so assiduously that in time he and Deedee beguiled many a happy hour playing together after night had fallen. So all went well with this well-mated pair. Time never dragged. There was always new, wonderful mornings, and still cool twilights at the end of the day. And ever a thousand interests claimed him, and his interests were shared by her. More thoroughly than he knew, he had come to a comprehension of the relativity of things. In this new game he played, he found in little things all the intensities of gratification and desire that had been found in the frenzied big things when he was a power and rocked half a continent with the fury of the blows he struck. With head and hand, at risk of life and limb, to bit and break a wild colt and to win it to the service of man was to him no less great an achievement. And this new table on which he played the game was clean. Neither lying nor cheating nor hypocrisy was here. The other game had made for decay and death, while this new one made for clean strength and life. 
and so he was content, with Dede at his side, to watch the procession of the days and seasons from the farmhouse, perched on the canyon lip, to ride through crisp frosty mornings or under burning summer suns, and the shelter in the big room where blazed the logs in the fireplace he had built, while outside the world shuddered and struggled in the storm-clasp of a southeaster. Once only Dede asked him if he ever regretted, and his answer was to crush her in his arms and smother her lips with his. His answer, a minute later, took speech. Little woman, even if you did cost thirty millions, you are sure the cheapest necessity of life I ever indulged in. And then he added, Yes, I do have one regret, and a monstrous big one, too. I'd sure like to have the winning of you all over again. I'd like to go sneaking around the Piedmont Hills looking for you. I'd like to meander into those rooms of yours at Berkeley for the first time. And there's no use talking. I'm plumb soaking with regret that I can't put my arm around you again that time you leaned your head on my breast and cried in the wind and the rain. End of Part 2 Chapter 26